Gamble on, fellas. Gamble on. <laughs> Welcome again to Gamble On, the weekly gambling podcast presented by usbets.com. I'm Eric Raskin, U.S. Bets Managing Editor and Media Director, and I'm joined by our senior analyst, Pulitzer Prize finalist, John Brennan. And we've both spent time this week in upstate New York. Uh, John in Saratoga, as we'll discuss in the news segment in a few minutes, and me in Cooperstown, where my son is in a week-long baseball tournament. It's at Cooperstown Dreams Park, a very cool facility where the fences are all exactly 200 feet down the lines, giving these kids a real chance to enjoy a home run trot. Uh, We haven't been to the Hall of Fame yet, but we should get a little downtime on Friday or Saturday to head over there and find no evidence that Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, or Gamble guest Pete Rose ever played baseball. Uh, Anyway, this is almost certainly my son's last Little League experience. He's 12. He'll try out for the middle school team next spring. Maybe he'll play all through middle school and high school, but this is his final week as a Little Leaguer. Uh, John, you tend to have a story for every occasion. Got a favorite Little League memory to share? Oh, sure thing. So for those who have met me, they know that I'm six feet tall and well, I've lost about 20 pounds or so this year. I'm still not quite in the lanky category, right? But when I entered high school at four foot 11, 9,900 pounds, uh, mm. my favorite year of organized youth baseball came a year earlier than that, actually. Um, okay. So I'm tiny and crouching in the batter's box like Ricky Henderson, okay? And left-handed, and that was problematic for pitchers because they saw so few southpaws at bat back then. So I, as I remember that year, I had a slash line of 500 average, 500 slugging, because all my hits were singles, of course. <laughs> yeah. And 750 on base percentage. That's uh, eight for 16 with 16 walks for those who are challenged in math. <laughs> but the kicker was that my fraternal twin brother was also on the team. Now, he had just grown a little bit, a uh, few inches that year. So he's taller than me. We never have looked at anything alike. Plus, he had hit right-handed, or rather he batted right-handed because he rarely got a hit that year. <laughs> but somehow the manager constantly got us confused, which we found bizarre. Now, another of our many polar opposite traits was that he was a speed demon. And I, well, I also like Pete Rose, the aforementioned Pete Rose, yeah. to try to be respectable on the bases. Okay. So every time I'd get on base, which of course is most of the time by that 750 OBP, right. um, I'd look across the third base coach who was the same manager, same guy. And every time, since he somehow confused us, he'd have me attempt to steal. It was kind of exhausting. <laughs> and my success rate was like mediocre, right? Now, in the rare times my twin got on base, which which he probably would not, um, he was the fastest guy on the team, and he never once got a steal sign all year. <laughs> like, we were still just young enough to not question authority, I suppose. So right. if it was a weird final season for both of us uh, in flannel uniforms, that was the end. That's funny. Uh, I, I'm surprised you compared yourself to Ricky Henderson, and, and when, I thought you were going to go for the Eddie Geidel comparison with your diminutive uh, stature, yeah. but uh, you're not with quite the same that birthday, small. But with the same birthday, and he's ten. he batted 10 years to the day before I was born. Yeah. Oh, okay. There you go. You really do have a, an anecdote for everything. I throw yeah, I Eddie Geidel at you, and you got a few fun facts. I do. So uh, baseball was everything to me from age seven to 10. And then at 10, I started playing tennis and baseball receded and I was finished playing baseball by 11 or 12. But I have a couple of particular little league memories that stand out. Um, 
like you, I was mostly a singles hitter, um, but I hit exactly one home run and it was a grand slam in a scrimmage game though. Uh, But still I I count it. Um, I also went on a run as a pitcher during my age nine season where I pitched six consecutive perfect innings. Um, It was across three games because there was a two inning per game pitching limit, but Six innings in a row, no base runners. Uh, I was like DeGrom before DeGrom. Uh, and then I have uh, one one random memory that sticks with me. I got hit by a pitch, uh, nothing crazy, plunked on the leg. I was fine. And the kid on the other team who threw the pitch, I knew him a bit because he had been on my team the year before. He came over to our bench between innings to apologize and to ask if I was okay. It just really sticks with me. Sometimes it's the little things. He's a, he was a good kid. He's a good guy. We're actually still in touch. So uh, anyway, those are my little league stories. And uh, and my son got one yesterday afternoon that will last a lifetime. His team rallied from 12-2 down in the fourth to win 15-14 on a bases-loaded two-out walk-off hit in the bottom of the sixth, and he made a key defensive play for the third out in the top of the sixth to keep the game within striking distance. So it was a great sweat, even without any money on the game. Yeah, yeah that's great. And uh, it's funny that you mentioned that uh, the Little League memories. I guess I never hit a home run in my life, Yeah, I'm thinking about it. I won 20 games one year. We played slow pitch baseball, which is kind of weird, Hmm. I guess. And, uh, you know, no adult supervision, obviously. And I was always the pitcher and I had a groove like a mechanical arm. Like I knew where every batter wanted the ball. So I threw it exactly there. So most at bats were one pitch and they hit it and they got a base hit. They got out, whatever there was and went on and on. So I enjoyed that. But uh, I cannot even in scrimmage practice, nothing. I'm not sure I ever hit a home run. All right. And, and your, your old coach, if he's still alive, surely yeah. remembers your brother as a great pitching machine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That was a strange season. in retrospect. <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you to everyone for indulging us in our little league memories and for joining us for episode number 205 of Gamble On. If you missed any of our previous 204 episodes, they're all available on Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. You can even go all the way back to episode one, which I believe was recorded back when John was still playing little league ball, (laughs) Uh, you know, give or take 50 years. Uh, Something like that. Yeah. And uh, coming up a little later in the show, we're going to be joined by the highly knowledgeable industry reporter, Jill Dorson, our colleague at Sports Handle and our other sites as well. Uh, Jill will give us a scoop on sports betting hopes in her home state of California, the latest on timing in Massachusetts, plus insights on what's happening between the two coasts as well. But first, it's been a busy week for me, at least in the world of gambling. So let's get to it. Here's your Gamble On News of the Week, an inside look at the biggest stories in the world of gambling. Let's start with a quick edition of John Brennan on the road again, attending his third East Coast industry conference in the last month or so. And I'm assuming his first of the three where he neither caught COVID nor missed panels while battling COVID. (laughs) Uh, John, as I teased at the very top of the show, uh, you attended the racing and gaming conference in Saratoga Springs, as did our friend Matt Rybaltowski. Uh, You wrote for both our New York and New Jersey sites about the possibilities regarding the New York downstate casino licenses. You also covered a panel on online casino legalization. And there was, of course, a lot of horse racing discussion during the week. I'll hand it right over to you, John. What things were said that caught your ear? And how is this conference the same as or different from the other two you recently caught in Boston and North Jersey? Yeah, I mean, my final panel on Wednesday in Saratoga Springs was about the Federal Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Act, which somehow got the acronym of HISA 
or it's a depending on potato or potato sort of thing. And <laughs> I hadn't quite realized that so many horsemen actually liked the idea of single federal standards in a sport, but how many just weren't going to like whatever version was passed. And they don't like HISA, HISA, whatever uh, at all, which went into effect on July 1st. So I learned about that. And it sounds like maybe by the end of this year, they will be able to live with it and not hate it anymore. So that was good. Um, also, longtime gaming industry expert Howard Glazer gently chided online casino legalization backers for having unrealistic expectations that mobile sports betting would create a huge tailwind that iGaming could exploit easily. You know, uh, he said many uh, iGaming leaders were a little bit lazy in terms of lobbying, and here we are with the majority of states offering mobile sports betting. And yet only a half a dozen or so offer legal online casino uh, play. Glazer does predict that eight to 12 states will be coming aboard the next two or three years with online casino, though. So hmm. he was not all gloom and doom, I would say. OK, um, so you, you also, uh, as I noted, you, you wrote those couple of articles about the uh, New York downstate casino situation. And, and it sure sounds like uh, everybody in the know is saying not to waste your time thinking about a casino coming to Manhattan. Uh, that seemed the, the, the big message coming out of those articles. And particularly, you noted there's lots of buzz about it landing next to City Field, which um, I'm in a city that a couple of years ago opened a casino in the same complex as all of our sports stadiums, Live Casino in South Philly. And it's fun. It's a great spot for it. If you're a casino player and a sports fan, you can really make a whole day and night of it gamble before the game or after the game or both play some bets before the game or during the game on your phone so i endorse the idea of a casino next to city field certainly makes more sense to me than putting one in manhattan although uh you know wake me up in 20 years we might have a casino on every block of every major city but but for now the idea of a casino in manhattan still feels like a little much to me yeah i think the key there too was uh, uh not the metal lens racetrack operator jeff corral's bragging about it but he's been a real estate guy in manhattan for almost a half century he knows more about new york and new jersey gaming issues than anybody he actually his staff uh, wrote the law almost 10 years ago that had gambling expansion in New York state. And he got a, eventually uh, not right away, but he got a uh, racino upgrade to casino in his upstate racetrack in New York state as well. Right. So when he's talking about what he thinks about Manhattan, he knows all the people. And he mentioned in passing, like my real estate buddies in New York uh, in Manhattan uh, don't want to hear this, but they have no chance. He's not just speculating as an outsider, like you or I would do. This guy is right in the belly of the beast and he knows. And so when he said, I, that he expects that Steve Cohen and the Mets will will get this uh, casino next door unless they screw it up somehow. That again, that's not idle speculation. He knows stuff that uh, right. I wouldn't know otherwise. So uh, I take him seriously, and uh, I'm surprised. It's like eight miles north of Aqueduct, so two casinos in Queens, really. But there's only like you know three million people, which is more than like in Queens, which is like more than every other city in the country, practically. So right. I guess they can handle it, but we'll see. Okay. Uh, all right. Moving on to our second story. We will be talking extensively with Jill Dorson in a few minutes about California sports betting legalization hopes, but there was one major news story on this front last Friday that we ought to discuss first without Jill. Uh, while we've covered news about various groups opposing Proposition 27, which would legalize online betting in the state, we now have an important organization backing Prop 27, Major League Baseball. MLB became the first sports league to take a stance on the ballot measure, stating, quote, 
As legalized sports betting continues to expand across the country, Major League Baseball remains committed to protecting the integrity of its games and creating a safe experience for fans who wish to wager on those games. Proposition 27, the only measure on California's upcoming ballot that would authorize and regulate online sports betting, includes strong integrity provisions designed to help MLB carry out those commitments, end quote. That's not exactly a surprise that the sports leagues would support Prop 27, as it's backed by many of the major sports books each league is partnered with, although none of the other leagues besides MLB has made a statement yet. Uh, MLB did not make a statement one way or the other on Proposition 26 for retail betting at tribal casinos. John, is there anything you find noteworthy about MLB's statement? And does this figure to have any impact, in your view, on Prop 27's chances of passing? Well, you know, with MLB out there, there's the Dodgers, of course. The NBA has the Warriors out there. NFL has the Rams. That's a lot of California sports fans who have been celebrating recent titles and have hopes for more in the next, oh, 12 months, you know. Mm -hmm. So now the four traditional sports leagues plus the NCAA spent six years pressing a lawsuit against New Jersey so they could avoid having legal bets placed in their games. Of course, they flipped in about eight seconds after the Supreme Court ruled <laughs> yeah. in 2018. So it stands to reason that if MLB could do a double gainer bat flip on that issue, why not have the other leagues join in the fun? MLB alone, you know, not so much, but if they all joined forces and came out in favor of something, I could see that maybe moving the needle a little bit. Yeah, that, that's kind of how I feel about it. I, I can't imagine this endorsement alone moving that needle yeah. much, you know, or even bringing additional awareness to the ballot measure, really. It's just MLB. As much as I talked about my love of baseball at the top of the show, nobody really cares what MLB says. Uh, and I think the same is pretty much true of the NBA and the NHL. I do think a very public announcement of support from the NFL can make some difference, You know, make more people in California aware of what this initiative is about. When the NFL does or says something, it gets more media coverage than the other three leagues combined. Um, there's always going to be something semi-icky about the word integrity because of the way the leagues mutilated <laughs> it with the integrity fees idea. But but conceptually, I like the message MLB is sending with their statement to whoever happens to hear these words that regulating online sports wagering makes it safer for all involved for the reasons we've discussed ad nauseum on this podcast. Um, anyway, we'll, we'll discuss this more uh, with Jill, but this is shaping up to be a really interesting November sweat in California. I don't think anyone quite knows how the voting on these two props is going to go. Yeah, I think the Dodger fans would be like online to vote. And then with about, you know, an hour or so to go, they would just leave the line and go home. But was that out loud? I'm sorry. I didn't oh, boy, if the Mets and Dodgers meet in the playoffs, you're, you're building yeah. some hostility, getting it going early. I like it. Yeah, right. All right. For our third story this week, let's do something a little different. The rare gambling industry feel good story. Jeff Edelstein wrote a follow up this week on his piece from last fall about DraftKings CEO Jason Robbins a suspected Twitter burner account heaping praise on him, and a charitable donation Robbins made when Edelstein dug into the story. Here's the short version of that. The Twitterverse accused Mo Gazapora of being a fake account controlled by Robbins to heap praise upon Robbins, but it turned out Mo was real and runs a charity that helps get food and water to poverty-stricken Pakistanis, and Jeff suggested Robbins make a donation, figuring he'd squeeze like 500 bucks out of Robbins, and instead, the DraftKings CEO contributed $100,000, about three times what the charity had raised in the previous few years combined. So what did that money go to? Less than 10 months later, construction has been completed on a small school in Pakistan called the Aisha Academy. 
And in a relatively minor but still fun twist, the donations prompted by the whole thing went up from $100,000 to $101,000 when Alex France, who first accused Mo of being a Robbins Burner account, felt he ought to chip in as well. <laughs> uh, John, I'm not sure this story needs a whole lot of analysis, but any thoughts, feelings, etc., are welcomed. Yeah, I mean, first of all, you love quirky gambling stories like this. Uh, yeah. Nobody does them better or more regularly than our <laughs> Jeff does. So yes. follow him on social media for sure. He's got some wacky, wacky, wacky ideas and uh, interesting reads. Um, second, Jason Robbins has taken his lumps in the public eye at times in the last few years and deserved or undeserved. That's a, a good debate. But um, that sort of thing tends to make anyone very defensive. So Jason decided to offer the sort of gracious, happy ending that we all need more of. So kudos to him here. And, and the, the story within the story of how it went from a charity to get food and water to building a school is really something. Mm. It, it was a small charity and, and they weren't scaled for this. So uh, when Gazapora got the $100,000, he said, delivering groceries, it would take probably 10 or 15 years to spend. Uh, so he connected with another charity and the money was enough to build a school and pay several teachers and administrators salaries. I guess $100,000 goes a lot further in Pakistan than it does here. Yeah. Um, anyway, okay. gambling, you know, doesn't have too many feel good stories other than person X one big money which starts as a feel-good story, and then we don't get to see how well Person X takes care of that money. Might not be such a feel-good story in the end a lot of the time. Yeah, um, but this is an honest-to-goodness feel-good story. Uh, and a nice change of pace for uh, for Jeff Edelstein in that it, it counterbalances all the ill he brings into the world by spending every waking moment doing best ball drafts or <laughs> writing Roto Grinders columns about Zach Wilson hooking up with moms. That was one of his recent topics. So I, yeah. I think this puts Jeff on the positive side of the ledger. Yeah, he likes to write about the generic gamblers, but he also likes to be that guy sometimes. But <laughs> right. uh, entertaining reads regardless. Yes, definitely. It's time to welcome a special guest from the world of gambling. Let's get to the Gamble On interview. If there's a sports betting industry reporter more on top of where legalization and regulation stand in each state than Jill Dorson, I haven't met him or her. Jill writes primarily for our sister site, Sports Handle, but her byline can really be found all over our network in news and feature reporting. And she's been extra busy the last couple of weeks covering developments in major potential sports betting states. So we have a lot to ask her about in this interview. Jill, welcome once again to Gamble On. Always happy to be here. So the eyes of the sports betting industry are on California as we're inside three months from the November elections and there are two sports betting ballot measures in California, the state in which you happen to live. You wrote a tremendously in-depth article this week on how the proponents and opponents of these initiatives are confusing voters with their messaging, specifically with regard to Prop 27 for online wagering. What does it seem needs to happen or change over the next 12 weeks for this measure to pass? So I think it's really hard to know what's going to pass, whether it'll be 27, 26 or neither. Um, at this point in time, there's a whole bunch of polling out there, but it's all skewed, you know, to the yes on 27, no on 27, whoever's doing the polling. Hmm. Um, but I think the answer to the question that I got from political consultants and people involved in the sports betting world is that. Prop 27 needs to start really focusing on the fact that they have tax money geared toward fixing California's homelessness problem. 
And it's clear that they're not going to fix it. Um, they might make a dent, uh, but it would make more sense to to go after voters that way because it draws in voters who don't care about sports betting, but do care about homelessness. Um, and it also would stop the confusion, meaning that on both Proposition 27 for and against, they're using tribal leaders in their advertising. And so you get a lot of tribal leaders standing in fields talking about how long they've been in California um, and what is going to help them. The problem is, is that both yes and no say that that's the right way to go. And since the picture is the same, it's very hard to determine which way to go. Right. Um, and and MLB, of course, recently came out and, and endorsed Prop yeah. 27. Does that move the needle at all? Or, or, or would it if the NFL joined in also, would that move the needle? So it's an interesting question. One of the consultants I talked to was like, ah, you know, it's not that big of a deal. Um, people aren't waiting for Major League Baseball to tell them how to vote. I would argue maybe that, that that's not true, that if Major League Baseball and potentially the NFL, although I don't think the NFL is going to be the one to, next one to stand up because they've been slow to support sports betting, although they're making deals for it. Right. But if any of the other professional leagues stand up, I do think actually that it's a very specific demographic that they're talking to. They're talking to sports fans and sports fans often become sports betting customers. So my opinion is that it will be useful, but that if it's in a vacuum, if it's just Major League Baseball, it might not be enough. Um, and so it'd be interesting to see if the NBA or NHL come out in the next few weeks with any kind of support for Prop 27. Uh, yeah, Jill, I'm, I'm really fascinated by a lot of the uh, advertising in California that I'm hearing about, which is that uh, sports betting, you know, especially mobile sports betting, it, it's too risky. You know, why take a chance and all that? And, you know, I, I love this concept even if it's just for cynical purposes, after uh, New Jersey and Delaware in mid-2018 joined Nevada in offering uh, sports betting because those three states, you know, a lot of the other states, look at them. Those are degenerate gambling states. They do all kinds of crazy crap that we're never going to do. And so we don't want to be like them. So vote no. Like that, I get, I love that. But when 25 or 30 states already have it, and many of them had it for three to four years, I would have thought that horse had left the barn already. And yet here we are. So wonder if there's any pushback on people saying this is absurd or you know what, if they must have spent money on re market research and all that. So this might work, I guess. Right. Well, so there's a couple of things that I would want to address. Every time a new state starts to legalize, I think to myself while I'm watching the hearing, been there, done that. But then I realize when I'm watching, that even the, the lawmakers who are making the decisions, it's not been there, done that for them. Mm -hmm. It seems that even the smallest things that we take for granted um, are news to them and they need to have an explanation for why something will or won't work or is or isn't a good idea. So I think you do have to take every state as, as its own entity um, where they're not really paying attention anywhere else. Mm -hmm. um, I would agree with you that I think that it's a little cynical, um, especially because the tribes have said clearly that they do want mobile sports betting. They just don't want it this way. So it will be interesting to see how they walk that back. If 27 doesn't pass, what are the tribes going to do in two years or four years, the next time they have a ballot initiative and they ask for mobile sports betting, wouldn't the argument then be, well, you didn't want mobile before because it hurt this one, this one, and this one. Um, and I think what you're going to hear back from the tribes then is, well, we can control it in a different way. We can put parameters around it that will limit people, um, you know, having access and going too far. But the fact of the matter is those all, as you know, John, already exist. 
um, yeah. that from an operator perspective, it, it's safer um, to bet online than it is to bet in a casino in person. They can track people. The, the responsible gambling people will all tell you that they'd rather have online actually because they can track people and they can reach them to give them um, solutions to their problem. Yeah, I, I agree with you on caution on uh, trying to be the big, bold predictor here. You know, you look at New Jersey in 2011, nobody knew if the New Jersey residents were going to uh, statewide were willing to flout federal law and vote to have a state law that flew in the face of the federal law and have sports betting. And it won by a two to one margin and everybody was stunned. And then just two years ago, uh, OK, well, since we love that, apparently most of the same voters still alive, you know, uh, so we're just going to we forgot the one thing about college sports in state college sports betting. So we'll just add that too, right. This little tiny crumb. And it lost by like, you know, by a significant margin. So even even in a, you know, gambling centric state like New Jersey, it's been impossible to really comfortably predict how they're going to go. So with California not having done as much of this, you know, it's going to be an interesting evening and come November, that's for sure. No, I, what's most interesting about that is one political consultant I talked to who's on the East Coast said, you know, a lot of uh, voters go into the into Election Day with no information. And they walk into the voting center and they think, you know, well, yeah, you know, the Rams are playing on Sunday. I'd love to bet on them. But if you did it the week after, maybe it was their off week and they didn't think that. That the point <laughs> being that a lot of people just vote on a whim or however they feel on that day. Um, what's kind of interesting this year in California is we normally have um, pages and pages of initiatives. And, you know, I personally go through and I pick the handful that I'm super interested in. And the rest of them, if it costs me money and taxes, I'm not voting for them. And then I skip the rest. Well, there's only seven this year and two of them are sports betting. Um, and the other five actually are much bigger issues, which is part of the, the problem as it were here. Um, there's uh, um, a reproductive rights initiative. There's a electronic cigarette initiative, things that generally resonate with more people um, and in a different way than sports betting does. So that's also been a challenge is I think everybody's heard about sports betting at this point because you can't turn on the TV, the radio, go on your social media or anything else without seeing something. But I'm not sure how tuned in people are at this point because it's already overwhelmed. Yeah, and of course the, the wording uh, that appears on the ballot always uh, proves to be important with the, the New Jersey one that John was referencing mm -hmm. with the in-state college betting. I remember part of it was that people weren't, it wasn't entirely clear what they were asking people to, to vote on. So if right. you didn't know yeah. coming in, have, have they released in California yet the exact wording that's going to appear on the ballot or is there still some mystery to that? So if I remember correctly, the deadline was last week for ballot information to be approved. Um, what you're seeing on say the secretary of state's website or the attorney general's website, I think it's pretty clear uh, what they're asking for. The problem is, is that you have two initiatives essentially asking for the same thing. Right. You know, we and probably all of our listeners can split that hair and know what the difference between digital sports betting and retail sports betting is. But I've pulled actually friends and parents who have nothing to do with sports betting. And they're like, yeah, I vote for both of those, which you can do. Um, they're considered complementary, so they could technically both pass. Um, but it's a very fine line, the difference between them, if you're not in sports betting. Yeah. All right. Well, while we wait to see what will happen in California in November, most of the waiting and seeing is over in Massachusetts. Sports <laughs> betting has been legalized and we're expecting a launch sometime during football season. 
various sources in Massachusetts are, are saying the regulators there are equipped to move quickly. Do you think a near record turnaround time is possible? What's the latest you're hearing on how soon sports betting could be live in Massachusetts? Okay, so let's start with no one's hearing anything other than no. politicians spouting <laughs> okay. off and saying, you know, hey, I back this and we're going to have betting by the beginning of football season. That ain't going to happen um, because right. that's only three weeks away. Um, to answer your question, yeah, the Massachusetts Gaming Commission is eminently prepared to do this. However, they're not going to move quickly. Um, and they're not going to move quickly is not anything different than the way that things have happened with legalizing this or anything else, actually, in Massachusetts. I grew up in New Hampshire, so I'm somewhat familiar with the processes there. But bottom line, I think, is that Massachusetts, there were a lot of politicians who very much supported legal sports betting. There was one who didn't. It slowed the process down, took them five sessions to get to the point where they're at now. And it's a compromise bill that, to be honest, is not all that great. But the bill is with the, you know, the bill is now a law and it's with the Gaming Commission. Um, and pretty much the first thing they said on their first meeting the day after the bill was signed was, hold your horses. It's not going to happen super fast. We have a lot to do. Um, so they are not at the point of putting rules in front of anybody yet. So that tells you to start off with that we're still months away. Um, and until the rules are actually um, written, even if it's just the proposed rules, there's no applications. Um, and applications take at minimum usually 60 days um, and generally 90 to be approved. So I actually would argue that we're looking at pre-Super Bowl, but not necessarily during the NFL regular season. But nobody's told me that, but I think you can infer. Hmm. Um, okay. It's not going to move fast. Okay, and interesting. And and you said that the the bill itself isn't that great. Um, is there a case though that it's still the best of all the New England bills because at least there's a competitive playing field with I think it looks like there could be somewhere around at least somewhere in the double digits number of sites whereas all of these other New England states sure. happen to have like one to three. So, yeah. so is Massachusetts maybe the best of New England at least so far. So, you know, it depends on how you define that, right? Because you're not going to be able to bet on local college teams, which, as we all know, is, you know, in the industry considered a huge negative because it still allows the black market to thrive. Mm -hmm. um, there is, if I remember, um, an official league data mandate, which is only in six or seven other states. Um, so there's various little things. Yeah, there potentially can be 15 platforms there, which in theory should make it competitive. But I would argue, actually, that that Connecticut is probably the most open competitive market in terms of like what you can bet on and what's available. I mean, you only have three platforms. No, no argument there that it's not a lot. But you have DraftKings and FanDuel and then you have um, a Rush Street product, which right now is Play Sugar House. So you do have a choice, at least there. Um, I agree with you that uh, New Hampshire just has one. Rhode Island has two. Not a lot of choices. Maine's going to have four, um, so it's not going to be Massachusetts. So sure, in terms of selection, but you're not going to be able to bet on everything you want to bet on. Right. And then the, the three in Connecticut, actually, three is plenty for the casual sports better. It's enough yeah. to give you a, li a little to do some odd shopping. It's only the super serious semi-pro type sports bettors who really look at, at three and say, that's not enough for me. So yeah. Yeah, I would think so. I mean, 
I don't have the option to look at any right now. <laughs> right. <so. laughs> yeah. I mean, Jill, they say the uh, human brain is like wired to look for trends and, uh, you know, predictability because it kind of makes the crazy world seem seem more sane. So we mentioned Massachusetts is really slow. I did a panel uh, this week at Saratoga Springs and New York State is going to take forever to get these New York City area casino licenses, apparently years, perhaps. Um, they were very slow with online sports betting. They just got that this year. Um, and then. You go across to Pennsylvania, they're very efficient. Go over right over to Ohio, they're kind of slow. And then, wait, Midwest, Kansas is rolling, rocking and rolling right now. Indiana and Iowa, they were uh, pretty quick. Uh, but Wisconsin and uh, Minnesota don't even seem to be aware of this topic at all. I mean, I, I look at geography and I look at, you know, I don't know, red state, blue state. I'm looking, I'm looking for some kind of pattern here on why certain states uh, – are, are really efficient about this. Even if a state doesn't want it and they know it, at least there's a there's a sense of this is what we want. But instead we got these states bouncing around back and forth. So I figure if anybody, yeah. uh, if there is a trend, you'd be the one that would know what it is. If so, if there is one, please enlighten me. <laughs> yeah, I don't think there is, I think. And I think the reason is because what we're talking about here is politics, not sports betting. Yeah. Um, You'll find in some states, Missouri, Massachusetts are great examples where the politicians can't get on the same page or take a really long time to get on the same page yeah. to figure out what they're gonna do. Um, once it gets to the regulator, that's a different story. Um, in Ohio, they were very clear that the processes that are in place in, in the state for any kind of regulations take 12 months and that they were gonna take 12 months and nobody should call them slow because they're just following the rules. Yeah. Um, Connecticut went from legal to live in like three months. I mean, they were one of the fastest three or four months along with Indiana and Iowa. Um, and so I think it's more a question of the politics around the legalization in the first place. Um, and then the makeup of the gaming commissions. Um, mm -hmm. The gaming commission in Massachusetts is known to be very conservative. The Senate president did not want legal sports betting at all and pushed really hard to not have collegiate sports betting. Um, and I believe from what I've read that the, um, the gaming commission, I mean, they don't have an opinion on whether it should be legal or not. And they're the gaming commission, but that they want to be very slow, very deliberate, and they want to honor everybody's wishes. And so I think, you know, they're starting tomorrow with a roundtable panel with the five casino and racetrack owners in Massachusetts to discuss rules. And they have a list of 225 rules and they're going to assign a lawyer to each one of them. So probably not 225 lawyers, but you know what I mean? A lawyer yeah. to each question. And then that lawyer is going to get with stakeholders to discuss each rule. So if you think about it in those terms, they are uber organized, right? The day after yeah. Governor Baker signed the bill, they had their list of 225 rules. But think about how long it's going to take to go yeah. through those and craft something that's acceptable to everybody. And so, you know, I, to answer your question, I look for trends too. For a while, I thought there are some trends, right? Like in the South, you can bet on colleges and anything pretty much, but in the North, it becomes a little bit more, you know, puritanical. And there's things that we are not happy about if we come from New England, <laughs> yeah. and, you know, that the rest <laughs> of the country is free and easy about. Um, but then you look at the West and like, there's almost, for a while, there was almost no betting here, right? It was Nevada was an island. Um, Washington state has legal sports betting now, but it's only in person, um, Oregon, the lottery did it and it's not an awesome product, although now DraftKings has taken it over, but Arizona surprised me last year when I was writing that story, when they launched on the, um, first day of the NFL season, they were the first Western state to like across the board legalize. And, and I mean, first Western state, like West of the Mississippi, other than say Colorado, which everybody holds up as 
you know, a great example of, of what this all looks like. But, mm-hmm. you know, think about that. There, there is betting in Wisconsin and in New Mexico and some other states at tribal, um, uh, tribal casinos, but not online. And they've just been slow to do it, which seems counterintuitive, right? You'd think it would have gone west to east when you think about the way that, you know, the U.S. is set up and how we're sort of considered real free and easy out here and, you know, buttoned up tight in New Hampshire. So, yeah, I, I think you've, you, you're onto something and I think we're almost there. It's politics and what's at stake, right? If, yeah. if I remember right, Colorado, I think a lot of the new tax revenue was going to go to like water preservation or something environmental, which is yeah. very important to people who live there. And in New Jersey, the reason they're way ahead of this stuff, I mean, God, they got online casino nine years ago, you know? And mm-hmm. the reason is that the future of the Atlantic City casinos, which is the largest employer in South Jersey, were at stake. And then directly to that, the future of the state's horse racing industry were at stake. So there's no... Yeah. Uh, dissension in Trenton and the state house over whether to support this new industry. And with Atlantic City losing five casinos in the last decade, it's not like, oh, they're fine. They're just bluffing. They we lost five out of 12 casinos. So uh, this is a real thing. And the horse racing tracks almost closed 10 years ago. So that's why every sort of gambling issue that comes up in New Jersey passes easily. And, you know, most gov- every governor supports it. So so that's what I think it is. That's the ultimate answer. It's politics. Mm-hmm. It's also what's at stake in the different states. It's also like two really good points you made. Um, you would think that anybody running an initiative would have learned from Colorado. Um, you know, that initiative, I just was thinking, just, you just keyed me like barely passed. People right. were like on the edge of their seats and it was really clear, right? We're going to, it was the first state that we were going to send the money to something that didn't have to do with like gambling or education or whatever. And something that's really near and dear to the hearts of Coloradans. And they didn't advertise either hard enough or wide enough or whatever it was. And here in California, you know, the one thing polling numbers do tell you is that homelessness is a huge issue for people out here. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, you know, I, if I was prop 27, I would leverage that. Um, But you're also right. There's not as much nearly at stake here because there's already, we have tribal casinos and that's, who's going to get access basically to sports betting, whether it's digital or retail. And so you're not talking about, the same kinds of issues, I think, as you're talking about in, in, you know, a state like New Jersey or Indiana or Iowa, where they were trying to, you know, quote unquote, save something. People, I think, generally view the tribes. I mean, they are their own nations, but they, you know, they're huge employers and all of that. But I, I'm just not sure it resonates in the same way, you know, as it does with a more commercial venture. All right. Uh, great conversation as always, Jill. Uh, I'll let our listeners know that you can not find Jill on Twitter. Uh, she's too classy for that cesspool. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> but you can you can follow at sports underscore handle to keep up with what she's writing. Uh, so th- thanks uh, so much for joining us uh, once again, Jill. Appreciate the dig and have a good day. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Jill. Two men. Two men. $10,000. Will they run it up or blow it all? It's time to check in on the Gamble On bankroll. Let's update our betting bankroll. And the big news is that the CFL hot streak is over. Uh, John took the BC Lions minus two versus the Stampeders. And we can't call it a bad beat. Uh, The Lions were down 40 to 31 with just over six minutes to play but we can call it a near miss as they rallied to win 41-40. So after three straight winning CFL bets, John, you take an L on this one by a single point, 
to the tune of 165 bankroll dollars. Uh, your golf bets were almost a wash. Zalatoris top 20 won us $50 when he finished the top one, uh, but Horschel <laughs> top 20 cost us $50 when he missed the cut. And then you said something to the effect of let's throw away 10 bucks on Shoffley to win outright. And that's exactly what happened. 10 bucks were thrown away, leaving the golf bets at minus $10. Uh, my boxing bet also failed. Uh, Tim Bradley and I were both wrong in predicting Teofimo Lopez would stop Pedro Campa in the first five and a half rounds. Lopez dominated en route to a stoppage in round seven, about four minutes of fight time too late. That one cost us $65. Uh, and I'll note before we place this week's bets that I placed a few boxing futures a few weeks ago, and the last of those comes due this weekend. We have $100 on Oleksandr Usyk minus 200 versus Anthony Joshua. Anyway. We lost $240 last week, putting us back on the wrong side of that minus 3,000 line. We are now down $3,174. We have $1,305 on hold in futures bets, leaving us with $5,521 available to bet with this week. And I'm up first, and I assume most of our listeners are well aware of the insane Baltimore Ravens preseason winning streak. Hmm. They've now won 21 straight preseason games, and it is a meaningful trend in that even though the players change, it's been a consistent coach and staff and yeah. I guess franchise philosophy in approaching mm -hmm. these games. Clearly, they're playing to win at least a little more than most other teams and or their training camps get them more cohesive than other teams are in August. That said... I don't think that any NFL team should ever be like a minus 260 favorite in a preseason game unless they announce they're playing all their starters for two or three quarters and the opposing team announces they're barely playing their starters at all. I think the sports books have overcompensated now with the Ravens line and made them too big a favorite. And we can get as high as plus 225 on the Cardinals money line against them. And for what it's worth, the Cardinals looked excellent in their first preseason game. They got out to a 36 to nine lead over the Bengals before allowing a couple of late touchdowns and still winning 36, 23, their home Sunday night against the Ravens. I would expect they'll be trying at least a bit to win, to be the team that ends the Ravens win streak. So I'm going against the grain here. I like the plus 225 price on the Cardinals money line. Let's bet $60 to win 135. And if it fails, I will ban myself from preseason bets on any sports for the remainder of 2022. And please hold me to that, John. Oh, thank goodness. And uh, <laughs> I know I like the idea because even I knew about this just now. That Ravens thing has gone viral. Finally, it took four plus years, but yeah. uh, it's there. So uh, I like it. Uh, now, maybe I have my own definition of bad beat, but when uh, the, the CFL team I choose piles up 533 yards of scrimmage, while allowing only 286, I'm pretty sure I backed the right horse there. But <laughs> Now, that's four straight dominant performances for my four picks, none of which were favored by more than five points, by the way. Now, that said, kudos to those who bet the Stampeders on the idea that, yeah, they're going to pile up, I don't know, 297 special team return yards. <laughs> yeah. Problem is, such a performance is rarely repeatable. Uh, this ain't the peak Devin Heston Chicago Bears out here, okay? So uh, there's a betting opportunity either on the Lions or against the Stampeders, knowing that little detail. Make mine Lions or seven and one and lead the CFL in both most points scored and fewest points allowed. Uh, assuming they make some adjustments on special teams this week, like, I don't know, firing coach maybe, but uh, I expect them to blow out the just okay Saskatchewan Rough Riders. So we get a fifth straight dominant performance, go to four and one, 165 to win 150 on the Lions at a mere minus five points. Okay. 
Now, here's a question that just occurs to me. Uh, could they could they organize a, a scrimmage game, BC Lions versus Detroit Lions? Now, that, that could be fun. Lions versus Lions, one of the maybe the best team in the CFL against, uh, well, I know some people expect them to improve this season, but in recent years, at least a doormat of the NFL come up with some kind of hybrid rules between NFL and CFL. I'm, I'm throwing that out there as a gimmick idea, Lions versus Lions. Yeah. If you Google like CFL standings, as I tend to do being uh-huh. old school, <laughs> the first like line you will see as a CFL team ever played an NFL team. Mm. And I see that headline and like 99% of people, I don't care enough to check. So I don't even know if it's true, oh. but, uh, <laughs> but, but a lot of people don't know the answer. Okay. A lot of people are asking that question but nobody cares enough to click into it. So it's kind of a weird dynamic. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm, I'm pulling for lions versus lions with uh, <laughs> Doug Flutie doing the opening coin toss. Uh, yeah. Is that like a matrix thing where they kind of <laughs> folded themselves? And <laughs> Perhaps. Weird yes. uh, universe occurs. I don't know. Yeah. All right. Um, so for my second bet, uh, I'm going back to boxing. And I'm probably due for another careful look at the spreadsheet soon where I total up all my boxing bets over these four years to see if I'm still ahead on them. I was up something like $1,200 just on boxing at one point, but if I'm still in the black unboxing, it's probably not by much. Maybe I'll check that next week uh, after I know the results of the aforementioned Usyk Joshua bet and of this one. On Showtime Saturday night, one of the undercard bouts, the lesser-known Alberto Pueo is a very live underdog, in my view, at plus 170 against Batir Akhmadov. This looks to me like a toss-up fight. So, again, keeping my bets about half size while our bankroll is shrinking, uh, let's do $50 to win 85 on Pueo. And then, also, I think this one is toss-up-y enough to make the draw worth a splash at plus 1600 So let's put $10 on the draw to win 160 all right, so it's week two of the PGA Tours playoffs, and we're down to 66 players and no cut this week in Wilmington, Delaware. First ever PGA Tour event in the state of Delaware, by the way. Hmm. And uh, I can still get good odds on young American Sam Burns for some reason. So in a small field, I'll gladly go 60 at plus 175 for a top 10 for Mr. Burns. And my sleeper is veteran Denny McCarthy, a putting specialist whose superpower there is his results on courses that have never hosted a tour event before. So 80 units and even money to finish top 30, meaning a half, a top, a top half the field. Gee, that's a mm. steal. Finally, 10 on favorite Rory McIlroy to win at plus 1000 for reasons I'll explain hopefully next week in the podcast. Okay. Uh, and that'll do it for this episode of Gamble On. Thanks to everybody out there for listening. And thanks again to our guest, Jill Dorson. You can find me on Twitter at Eric Raskin and John at Bergen Brennan and follow US Bets at US underscore bets. Go to usbets.com for all the latest news and analysis from the world of gambling and subscribe to this podcast on Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else. And with that, John, please take us out. Well, you know, the art of the bluff is a cornerstone of poker, especially the high stakes variety, as my co-host knows oh so well. Mm-hmm. But it's a part of life in so many ways, and or at least it can be. Now, take my first year in Little League Baseball. I'm eight years old, as it happened. Uh, well, having Chico's Bail Bonds as a sponsor, I love Bad News Bears, would have been a cool look on the back of our uniform. We lucked into something even better. That's because the small town merchant we landed was a local bakery in a strip mall right across the street from the field. So we win our first game. We go to celebrate with a cookie. And of course, we look adorable in these little uniforms and a nice lady behind the counter asks if we won. Yes, we had. So she says, hey, you all get free cookies after every game you win. <laughs> OK, we lose game two. We go to get our cookies. She asks again if we won. And 
Well, teams sort of split between hesitation and enthusiastic affirmation. Okay, so the latter won the day and free cookies for us again. Now, probably somewhere out there in someone's attic is a scorebook by someone's grandfather, great-grandfather, the manager, that shows that we went five and five that year. But as you know, no doubt have guessed by now, as far as that nice little lady in the bakery ever knew, we went 10-0 and and won the league championship. <laughs> now, the bluffing got more and more nerve-wracking as the season went on. Uh, since we were almost sure she'd figure out our nefarious scheme at some point and our gamble would be uh, busted. But we also realized we had innocent little faces. We could take advantage of that. Now, am I a bad person to say that even to this day, I have zero regrets? While you, dear listener, ponder that one, until next time, gamble on.